Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm speaking regarding the Regnan Credit Impact Trust to George Boucher, the portfolio manager who runs the fund. This is a portfolio focused on the credit part of the market. That is the lower risk, lower return of many people's portfolios. But it has a different trait in that it solely focuses on investments that will not only perform and give a good return, but provide impact in a social sense. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific advice or recommendation to individuals. I encourage everybody to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to seek advice before making any investments. Please keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. George, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, pleasure to be here. George, perhaps you could kick off by giving us uh, a background to yourself and, and your, 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 well, your background and, and introduction to who you are, please. Yeah, sure. So I, I've been in financial markets industry now for 25, 26 years. So um, started off um, straight out of university and basically progressed up through the ranks. Um, I've been managing portfolios, uh, fixed income portfolios now for about uh, 15 odd years. Um, and dedicated sustainable or responsible investing fixed income portfolios for about 11 years of that. So um, from my perspective, it's th- this whole concept of responsible investing and more so impact investing has been something that I'm, I'm incredibly passionate and interested about. And over that journey, what, what sort of organisations and roles ha- have you uh, had, George? Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually been with um, Pendle and its predecessor, um, and it's basically um, businesses before that, predominantly throughout most of my career, you know. So probably of the 26 years, I've been working at Pendle for about 25 years. Um, and I started off uh, back with Westpac Investment Management when that was around. And then um, we then took over Rothschilds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was effectively like a reverse takeover. So fortunately, there was a handful of us from the Westpac Investment Management business who actually made it through. And fortunately, that was uh, I was one of those people. Then we took over B, uh, BT Funds Management. Um, and again, so there's been a whole bunch of restructures at the time. I started uh, in a couple of years in back office accounting for financial instruments, then um, effectively moved into front office within a couple of years as an assistant portfolio manager, I started um, as it, and then from there, I went into dealing, repo trading, um, credit analysis, and then finally as a portfolio manager across uh, bond funds and also credit funds. It's probably worth touching on for the benefit of our listeners, uh, who Pendle is now and what it does and, and where it's come from, because I, I think it's a new name for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically, uh, we were coming up, I think it's been called Pendle now for roughly two odd years. Um, and what was, there's, there's a few reasons as to why we changed our name from um, effectively BT invest, investment management to Pendle. One of those was 
a, a bunch of our clients didn't want their fund managers to be attached with any major bank or any banks. So that was one rationale. Second rationale is we were paying effectively a lease to, if you want to call it a lease, um, uh, money back to Westpac to use that brand. Um, and, and how it, we worked out to be Pendle was originally many, many decades ago, <clears throat> back in the BT days, um, Pendle used to manage money under the uh, Dalgetty Pension Fund. So basically we used the first three letters of each of those words and reversed them and basically called it Pendle for Dalgetty Pension Fund. So that, that's how we ended up um, coming Pendle. But um, it's incredibly uh, strong franchise now. We're not just focused in Australia. We do have a significant business in Europe and also the US across uh, equities, fixed income, alternative assets, um, and uh, real estate. So it's quite a f formidable business now um, where we sit now relative to where back under the Westpac investment management days. And is there any link or tie with Westpac uh, in, in the Pendle business as it stands today? Oh, look, I think there's a very small, uh, Westpac has a very small exposure, um, but they have said they're basically exiting. So um, when, we, when Westpac first listed um, uh, the front office business, um, was early 2000s, I think it was. Um, basically, the um, or, or mid 2000s, um, they had they listed 40% of the business, and they retained 60%. And over time, they've um, brought that down. I think it's down to sort of sub 10% now. Might even be 5%. But they're literally on their way out if they've not actually exited as, as we speak. But they're basically minimal, if anything, right now. And George, we're, we're going to talk about the Regnan Credit Impact Trust. Uh, yes. Maybe we can start off by, by Regnan and, and that brand. What, what is that and who is Regnan? Yeah, look, it's a really exciting part of what we're doing now. So we first started on our responsible investing journey um, as a fund manager um, in the early 80s. So 1984, I think it was, or 87. Basically, we started with a an equity ethical trust. And then we developed that over time to move from just a negative ethical screen into more uh, ESG analysis. So there's two separate parts there. There's, you can screen out industries and secondly, you can work out sustainable leaders within industries. So in the um, late nineties, we actually approached um, some Monash University professors who focused on ESG research and from that, um, those members then, um, in the early 2000s, we actually formed a business, um, which is not, wasn't called Regnan at the time, but it's effectively Regnan as we stand today. Um, and those uh, professors and ESG research individuals uh, within that business, and all they do is focus on ESG research. So it's not about the financials of a business, it's about do, uh, entities that you invest in have any material ESG risks? And if they do, are they managing those risks sufficiently? So basically, um, from then we started, we, we had about 50% ownership in this new formed Regnan business. And we, we, we basically started our first um, sustainable equity trust in the early 2000s on the back of Regnan. And then in 2009, we launched our first sustainable fixed income fund, which is the fund I've been managing since then. 
Um, so Regnan are effectively an ESG research house, purely focused on that, not, not about um, looking at um, balance sheets of financials right now. It's our businesses um, sustainable leaders and are they managing their ESG risks appropriately or not? And George, you've got a wonderful slide in your pack that I think is very helpful, uh, but of course, not very helpful for uh, a podcast episode and listeners, but I'll do my best to describe it for our, for our listeners in that at one end of the spectrum or a continuum on a line, you've got traditional investors who are uh, looking to make money uh, at all at all sort of costs, if you'd like, are only interested in the financial return. And at the other end of that spectrum, you've got philanthropy where people are wanting to give their money to good causes and things that they believe in. And in between that, you've got um, ESG, ethical, social and governance sort of screening, and then negative screenings that you've been talking about, sort of positive screening, then sustainable themed investing. And then you've got impact investing and concession right up next to um, philanthropy. Can you maybe talk for our listeners where, in your view, impact investing fits? Is it that close to philanthropy where people are, uh, in effect, giving their money away without an expectation of a financial return? Or is it, in fact, you know, something I, I just that that graph when I look at your, you know, the, the slide deck title is performance and purpose. How do those things fit together and how much are you compromising? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Impact investing from not only my perspective, but, but Pendle's perspective is definitely the way of the future. Impact investing ultimately means you're investing in um, securities or projects that not only give you a financial return, so, so it's definitely not philanthropic, it's market-based returns, but you're also contributing positively to society or the environment. So we're either helping um, the, you know, the environment via either, via either renewable energy projects or carbon minimizing projects, carbon dioxide minimizing projects, or helping society for the really underprivileged individuals but we're doing it in a way where you, the investor is getting a financial return. And the great thing about this concept is when people see the performance returns of these portfolios, which have been very strong relative to peers, even non-impact space, they then are more inclined to invest in these strategies when I talk to them about the real positive impact we're having on society and environment. And the more investment we're able to generate more money that comes in the door to be able to invest in these strategies, the better society and the environment are going to be um, relative to where we're sitting today. So it's incredibly exciting part of responsible investing um, network. So let's talk a little bit about the credit impact fund, which you're the portfolio manager of. Um, what, what is that fund and what does it seek to do? Sure, sure. So this is quite a differentiated and unique Australian investment grade credit fund. So the way that investors should view this or, or should view this portfolio is um, its risk return is going to be like investing in any credit fund in Australia. That's the type of return profile you can expect. But a couple of other things about it. 
This fund is actively managed. It is not a buy and hold fund. So if you think about what happened with the corona crisis in March and equity markets were absolutely smashed, it also had a significant impact in Australian credit securities. So the average credit fund in Australia in March was down 4% in one month. That is not what people expect from a credit fund. Where the average annual return at, in today's market would be about what level or expectation? Um, look, look, right now, because uh, sovereign and cash yields are so low, like the cash rates 25 basis points, bank bills are only 10 basis points. So if you're invested in a floating rate credit security, you're getting a margin over 10 basis points. And if you think about government bond yields, a three-year government bond sitting at 25 basis points and a 10-year bond is at 90 basis points. Very, very low yield environment. So my point being is if you're investing in a credit fund hoping to get 2.5% per annum and you have a minus four in one month because this is a very defensive part of your portfolio, um, that's quite an issue. Absolutely. So, so this fund here, we're targeting cash plus one to three through the cycle. Sorry, it just faded out there. Uh, COVID to blame there. Maybe you can just repeat that. It just faded out there with the technology, sorry. Uh, sorry, um, so the, this fund, the objective of this fund is to get um, cash plus one to 3% through the cycle. Mm -hmm. We launched this fund at a very interesting time. We launched it on the 30th of January this year. So, so literally a month before uh, it all became a bit um, not so flash in markets. So at the time I was really struggling with the concept of, the, of our timing of our launch, but in hindsight, I'm, I'm so happy that we did launch at that time because it gives people an indication of how this fund will perform. I reduced risk in this fund. So I sold down a whole bunch of my high beta credit in late February, early March, prior to credit spreads or credit securities really selling off significantly. And when you say high beta credit, what, what do you mean by that for our listeners, please? So, for instance, um, uh, major bank sub-debt. So you've got senior debt, mm -hmm. you've got sub-debt. So major bank sub-debt, which pays you a higher spread relative to senior. However, in times of market turmoil, their securities will underperform versus the senior, senior bank spread. So therefore, and they, will, they basically have a higher beta, which means in good times, they perform much better. And, and more times than not, they perform much better than senior. However, in bad times, they can, they can underperform senior quite significantly. So I sold down uh, my high beta exposure in credit in late February, early March, as I was beginning more and more concerned around the new cases of corona and how that will impact risk markets and how that'll impact economies. So from my perspective, the, the um, for and against of that, it was very much against, so I started reducing that risk. Now, ultimately what that meant is, this portfolio under only underperformed by 70 basis points in March, when the average fund in Australia was down 4% in March. So reducing risk and actively managing credit funds is incredibly important as opposed to just a buy and hold strategy. And the great thing is, as we as more and more cases or as cases stabilised in April, and as the Federal Reserve 
um, global central banks and governments were pumping a lot of stimulus into the system, it gave us a stronger conviction on credit and risk markets going forward, as well as the additional credit spread that we were getting. So I actually increased my risk again in the markets in mid-April. So I've, I've benefited from the, the rally that we've seen quite significantly. So for the what six, seven months that this, this fund's been in existence, it's outperformed its benchmark by 1.9%, um, which is a great result given, given what other credit funds have done during that period. And George, what is the benchmark? So the benchmark's cash, basically, or bank bills. Mm-hmm. Um, all credit funds, effectively, or most credit funds, have has that as their benchmark. And and George, at the moment, I understand the funds around thirty million dollars. Yes. Um, what what is that comprised of today? What 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 are the investments underneath that? So the way to think about what I'm investing in, the focus in this fund is investing on credit securities but the focus is on impact credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example would be if the CBA, they could issue a senior bond or they could issue a climate bond. And what happens is that money is ring-fenced and only used for specific predetermined projects like wind farms, solar parks, hydroelectricity projects, low-carbon buildings, low-carbon transport. So that's where the money's going. It's going into these impact securities, which not only give us that financial return, but also give us that positive impact on either or um, the environment or society. Now, within the portfolio itself, I've got exposure to financials. I've got exposure to utilities, infrastructure, supranationals. So supranationals are effectively global sovereigns or agencies of global sovereigns who are doing some really positive things for society and the environment. They're incredibly highly rated. So they're triple A rated by the credit rating agencies. And it's those issues that the way they issue here in Australia. So it's Aussie dollar denominated exposure is what you're getting with this fund. And George, is the investable universe or the options that you have in front of you to select as the, the right sort of credit securities that you want to invest in, is that sufficiently big enough to give you enough choice, diversification, return, or are you looking at a small set of investments versus the whole universe? So it, to, to put some numbers around the universe, Australian dollar impact market is roughly $20 billion of current outstandings. So it's quite a significant number if you just think of that as an outright number. However, it's tiny when you think of it relative to all Australian bonds in the market. So it's only 1.5% of the composite bond benchmark is in impact bonds in Australia. So it's a very small percentage. However, it's a decent size when you think of the nominal number. Now, I one of the advantages this portfolio has, and it's a it's a it's actually a bit of a technical performance advantage, is that when a issuer or a bank comes to the market to issue an impact bond, let's say a climate bond, they ask investors what how much of their bid is to dedicated impact or ESG portfolios 
versus vanilla portfolios. Now, I not only manage dedicated impact and, and sustainable funds, I also manage vanilla portfolios as well. So I can see what happens during these transactions. So when the issuers ask us how much of your bid is for the dedicated impact funds versus the vanilla funds, the demand is so much stronger than the supply that they scale significantly the vanilla portfolio whereas the dedicated impact funds get a very high allocation. And I can see that because not many people in the market actually manage dedicated sustainable impact funds and vanilla funds. Fortunately, I do that, so I can see it perfectly. So the scaling in the vanilla funds, significant. I get a great allocation in these, these impact portfolios, the dedicated funds that I manage. And you can, you can imagine with the supply being so much strong, sorry, the demand being so much stronger than supply, how these securities perform in the secondary market. They rally very hard. Now to put some numbers around that, that's equivalent to about 40 basis points per annum of additional return that I get for my dedicated sustainable or impact funds versus my vanilla funds. These strategies, out, all things being equal, I manage them similarly from a duration perspective, from a sector overweight and underweight perspective, but there's this technical advantage in these dedicated funds, which see them outperform my other funds by points per annum, which is a great outcome. So originally people thought this whole concept of responsible investing would be at the detriment of performance. I can tell you now that's absolutely not the case. If anything, it's a complete opposite and they outperform the vanilla funds. And George, who, who is setting the, uh, the, the, the rules around whether it's an impact um, investment or not an impact investment? Um, and, and how is that determined? Sure. So, so there is um, a number of third parties that go about um, effectively quantifying and ensuring that impact bonds are impact or not. Not every impact bond that comes to the market has their stamp of approval. So one of the large ones is called the Climate Bond Initiative. So not every climate bond has that stamp of approval, but from our perspective, we require that when we invest in our securities. So not only that, but we do our own deep dive into every security with the assistance of Regnan, who have got this experience and their impact um, uh, capability where we not only do a deep dive in the issuer themselves, we have to be very happy with the credit quality of the issuer. We have to be happy with the valuation of the security. We have to, have to be happy with the um, projects and the impact quality. If any of those don't meet our requirements, we do not invest in them. So just because uh, a named impact bond comes to the market, we don't necessarily invest in it unless all of those things are met. Um, and, and there's a few examples as to you know, whether we think an impact bond is not. And really it comes down to, is this, uh, are the projects really supporting the underprivileged in society? Or secondly, are the projects supporting climate change? If it's supporting either of those two at a high level, and we're happy with the credit quality of the issuer and the valuation of the security, we'll get involved. And George, how do you measure at the end of the year? Um, measuring the financial outcome is pretty straightforward. Yep. But do you do any work or measurement around the sort of impact you're making or outcomes you're producing via this style of investment? 
Yeah, for sure. It's actually one of the, um, so about a year or so ago, um, I tasked our quantitative analysts and we've got the largest number of quants in Australia within our team. We've got about five quantitative analysts in our team. I tasked them with a project to build an impact database. I thought this would only take a month or so, ended up taking six months. The amount of work involved blew me away. And ultimately why it took so long is because our quants went away to every impact security in the market and did a deep dive in all of the underlying projects and accessed all of the information, things like carbon emissions avoided, renewable energy generated, uh, number of people supported via underprivileged education. Um, but the difficult part was there was firstly, these, the issuance of these impact bonds, the issuer doesn't have to provide an impact report which supports the positive impact. It's something that we push really hard with our engagement process to ensure they do that. But also the information is not standardised in these impact reports. So we had to go back numerous times with every issuer to try and standardise the information so that we have standardised information for every security so we can roll it up at the portfolio level and so that our investors can see when you invest in these portfolios, you, you know, um, for instance, this, this portfolio here, um, we've got a number of metrics that we look at, but two specifically, we look at carbon emissions avoided and the, and it's the, the, the numbers that we're reporting are the portfolio's contribution. So right now, this, this impact uh, fund has effectively emissions avoided of 13,000 tonnes of carbon that we're avoiding. And what that actually means to uh, an equivalency perspective, it's like taking 3,000 cars off the road per annum. So it, it really puts together an understanding of the positive impact so that people understand what it actually means. Another number that we like to quote is the renewable energy generated of 15,000 megawatts per, per, hour, um, per annum. That's effectively three and a half thousand average household electricity usage per annum. So it really, when, when we're um, investing in these securities, it's all about focusing on not only the financial return, but the quality of the impact and how much impact they're having. So this impact database that we created, um, it's really exciting because there's no other fund in Australia that's doing that for Australian dollar credit. Some of my global peers are doing it, but not, not in Australia. And the other thing that we're doing is we're going, we're in the process of developing a website that allows investors to see their impact when they invest into this portfolio. So not only at the portfolio level, but also the individual investors um, contribution to impact based on the tenor they've been in the fund and also um, how much money they have in the fund. So really exciting, really exciting way to show to our clients the positive impact we're having on the environmental society. And George, I, I'm guessing that those numbers that you're quoting in terms of impact are based on the fund at its size of 30 million. And my question yes. is uh, how much larger do you believe or want to grow the fund and, and what sort of increase in those sort of impacts are likely to result from that? It's literally a one for one. So if this fund doubles within the next month or next three months, the numbers that you would see here 
um, not instantaneously, but when we ultimately get the impact information, it will double. And, and would you suspect that the fund at 30 million would appear to me to be quite a small credit fund? Um, so you, you would be looking to get it to what sort of level or, or, or does it have a ceiling in terms of size that you'll allow it to get to or what sort of size do you think is a reasonable size for this sort of fund? Sure. The, the way we're thinking about this, because we want the fund to be true to label. So mm -hmm. we're opening it up for the first hundred million and then putting a, a temporary pause on it to make sure that the fund is invested in impact securities add to the percentages that we're after. So percentage exposure in that. Yeah, so just in that first step, you've got a threefold increase. Yeah, so if, if we got $100 million today, we would mm. do a pause on applications today until the securities are invested in a high percentage in impact securities, above and beyond the credit securities. And then once we're happy with the uh, exposure to impact securities, we'll open up again for the next 100. Now, to answer your question about size, I would have thought we'll be able to get to 500 million over time, which will have an absolute significant impact on um, the, the environment and society. Well, that, that would when you put it in the terms that you were just articulating and then you uh, put the multiplier yes. uh, associated with that on it, that you start to get some really meaningful numbers. George, yes. how, how are you thinking about markets at the moment? Obviously, um, you alluded to going through Corona, virus and the dislocation that has occurred, um, how are you positioned? What is your thinking around markets moving forward? Sure. So fr from our perspective, we're constructive on um, credit markets, investment grade credit markets. And it comes down to the fact that um, you've got globally every central bank doing whatever they can, whether it's ensuring um, cash rates are low, the yield curve control or quantitative easing, i.e. bringing down sovereign yields to a very low level. Um, so that ultimately allows corporates when they need to borrow to be borrowing at very cheap rates to sort of try and instigate um, a resurrection of, the, of, of um, economic growth. And then secondly, the other main contributor is globally we've got governments spending significant amount uh, fiscally to improve their economic environment. Uh, in Australia, for instance, we've got JobKeeper and JobSeeker, significant amount of money being used. So from our perspective, you've got significant amount of liquidity into the system that's looking for a home to invest. So when you've got cash rates so low, people start creeping out the curve uh, or in trying to grab or invest in securities that have a higher return relative to those very low sovereign yields. That's one of the reasons why equities have performed so, so well since, since, um, since March is because people are chasing returns above and beyond what traditional fixed income securities can, can provide. And also when you do a, a, a you know, the, the discount, discount cash flows for, for companies, when you do discounting those cash flows at lower risk-free rates, you get a higher valuation. So there's a combination of things. So, so, so are markets at risk because they've become dislocated from fundamentals in terms of underlying earnings and returns? Um, and are we at risk of a, a meaningful pullback or do you see the endless supply of injection of liquidity and cash from sovereign, uh, from reserve banks around the world? More the latter. 
So um, we, I think we'll continue to get a decent amount of volatility over time, but ultimately uh, uh, stimulus in the system will basically force people to continue to invest in equities, continue to invest in credit markets, um, because it's a it's the only real return in the in, in the investment in the investment world. So from that perspective, um, our view is credit markets continue to perform, um, and and a fund like this, uh, especially as an actively managed fund, performs very well. Um, so, so that that's sort of our our view on um, on markets. So and George, with with all this uh, government stimulus and injection. Uh, of liquidity into the system. Does that, I, I suppose everyone's been a bit mystified why inflation hasn't come into the system, but do you see any inflationary risks looking forward? My view is I don't think we'll see inflation anytime soon. However, the inflation market looking out sort of five, 10, 15 years has definitely started to uh, reprice in inflation longer in a longer term perspective. But for the next, from my perspective, the next sort of one, two, three years, I don't think we'll see much inflation. Ultimately, the drive, the main driver of inflation is um, people's average hourly earnings. So that's if 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 people are unemployed, there's 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 no pressure at all on people's average hourly earnings. So um, when there's wages pressure that come into the system that's when we'll start seeing inflation. And I don't see that in the next two or three years. However, it will kick in sometime after that. George, thank you very much. It's been uh, really insightful. I, I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy uh, the experience and the education around impact investing um, and being able to um, invest not only for return, but also for purpose. Um, thank you very much for that. I will give you the last comment if there's anything else you'd like Please. to sum up or provide, yeah. um, now's your chance. Yeah, thanks Dave, uh, and, and thanks a lot for, you, for your time and thanks for having me on board. I just wanna share if it's okay. Please do. The experiences I had with one of my social bonds and it, 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 it actually, for me, it was a game changer in how I even thought about investing, if that's okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So fortunately about a year or so ago, I was invited out to a social housing um, program um, a couple of locations in Sydney, Penrith and Campbelltown. And I wasn't quite sure what to expect with these homes. I just assumed they'd be run down and not very pleasant to, to, to live in. But to, to my surprise, they were brand new developments. So brand new blocks of units, brand new townhouses. And fortunately for me and the rest of the investors there, one of the ladies who benefited from this social housing program asked us into her home, there was only a handful of us, and also wanted us to hear how we helped her and how her life has completely changed on the back of this social housing program. So the way social housing, oh, 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 sorry, I'll talk to the lady first. Her story was, she was in an abusive relationship. She was quite a, a young lady. She would have been late 20s, early 30s. She was in an abusive relationship and she had a one-year-old child. She had to leave that situation as quickly as possible for her safety and the child's safety. And ultimately was living in a car for a period of time. And you can imagine how difficult that would be on your own, let alone with a one-year-old child. Fortunately, um, she was able to get a government support package, that's some type of pension. 
And at the same time, they got her involved in the social housing program. And the way it works is they take a quarter of her pension as rent for this, for this shelter, this home, and which is obviously incredibly, um, uh, incredibly value, valuable and, 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 and very, uh, very feasible for her. And they don't ever kick her out of that home. She stays there up until a point where she starts earning income of, of greater than $50,000. And at that point, if she starts earning income greater than $50,000, they move her from what they call social housing to affordable housing. And what they do is they, they look at the average rent in the area and they give her a 25% discount. Still very affordable for her. Now this home, as I said, was, was fantastic. It was a beautiful little home. She's able to study and, and going through a process now to upskill herself to get a job. Her life completely changed. She was on the streets and who, know, who knows what would have happened to her and a child on the streets, obviously not great outcomes, to now living in a great situation. Um, so, so her life has done a 180. But secondly, it's not only beneficial for her and a child, it's actually beneficial for society. The cost involved for society for the homeless is quite significant in relation to crime prevention, in relation to the police having to, to look after that, and also the healthcare attached to the homeless. So this whole concept of social housing, you may think only is beneficial for the individuals involved, but it's actually really beneficial for society as well. So that's the, the concept of these social bonds and environmental bonds. It's, it's such an exciting part of an investment hemisphere that for me, when I heard these stories, it was such a game changer for me. I had chills down my spine when this lady was talking to us and I'm so happy she did. But at that point, I thought to myself, that is a complete game changer from in instead of focusing on pure returns to be able to focus on securities like this that not only give you that return, but also provide that excellent and incredibly positive environmental or social benefit. For me, there's only one asset class in town when you can think of investing this way. So, And, and George, I, I thank I you for sharing that. I, I think it's a really good, real world, powerful experience of the type of impact these type of investments can uh, deliver. Um, I think it'd also be helpful to think about what, what was the economics of the other side of the investor into that bond as well? Yeah, it, actually, if anything, it was the best performing bond during uh, the COVID crisis. Every security that had credit related to it underperformed significantly during March. This bond rallied during that period because it, it did have a Commonwealth government guarantee attached to it. Yes. So effectively, it even outperformed the Commonwealth government bonds because people were chasing this type of security. So, and, and the running yield uh, or yield on that type of investment, is, is it about what rate? Oh, this, this is about um, 25 basis points over Commonwealth government bond. So um, this would be right now probably sitting at about 1.2%. But these types of, why to think about these, these um, securities, I don't necessarily hold these securities to maturity or actively mm -hmm. manage. So what had happened was, when this bond rallied really hard during March and April, I ended up selling out of this bond. And a month or two later, they issued a, the same issuer, issued a new bond, and I bought it at a much better level. So active management as well as impact is, is quite critical with these things. Terrific. 
Thanks, George. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on Inside of the Rope. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.